You're listening to a podcast produced by the Henry M. Jackson School of International Studies, the Center for West European Studies, and the EU Center at the University of Washington. This and other podcasts can be found on iTunes and SoundCloud. For more information, visit our website at jsis.washington.edu forward slash cwes euc. Welcome everyone to the 28th annual Rachel Carson Forum, focusing on water equity and the Anthropocene. Uh, I'm proud to present to you today's speakers, uh, Dr. Lauren Ross and Michael Tuncap, um, as well as uh, Ernesto Peñaslados, who will be um, in on the Q&A session as well. Thank you. Um, we will begin with Lauren's talk entitled Radical Water Solutions for Infrastructure Justice and then proceed to Michael's talk titled Indigenous and Historical Struggles for Water Equity in the United States. Um, after that, or actually during that time, we'll have a couple of students who will have note cards and pencils. And so if you have any question during that time regarding the talks, just raise your hand and we'll get you a note card and pencil. And then write your question down and raise your hand again and we'll take those and we'll collate those for the end when we'll have a Q&A session. Uh, so I'd like to introduce to you briefly Dr. Lauren Ross. Uh, so during four decades of environmental work and political activism, Dr. Ross helped to pass the Save Our Spring citizen referendum to strictly regulate development in Austin, close a hazardous waste facility in an East Texas African-American community, limit pumping in the San Antonio Edwards Aquifer to protect spring flows, and bioremediate soils in post-Katrina New Orleans. She designed the first privately permitted composting toilet in Austin, the first Austin-permitted residential gray water system in 25 years, the first pervious pavement system to stack stormwater, to stack storm runoff treatment and flood detention beneath a parking lot, and Austin's first biofilter for storm runoff treatment. Dr. Ross has also participated in designing and constructing sustainable infrastructure for global justice movements around the world. Uh, from rain collection and solar showers for Campesino farmers at Cancun, Mexico, World Trade, um, at, Cancun, at the Cancun, Mexico World Trade Organization meetings, gray water systems for field kitchens at Scotland's G8 meetings, to a bicycle-mounted portable composting toilet for the free trade area of the America meetings in Miami, Florida. She is currently working on projects to challenge racism and develop a water plan for the next 100 years in her home city, Austin, Texas. Uh, and so she'll be talking to you again about radical water solutions for infrastructure justice. Thank you. I want to start by saying thank you to Nick for your work organizing this and to Scott Double, who was the person who actually got me here. And I'm really honored to be at Evergreen College. Um, I've lived in Texas my whole life and I've known about this college my whole life. Um, your reputation for your environmental work and your creativity um, is, I don't know if it's all over the continent, but it definitely reaches into Texas, so it's really quite an honor to talk to you today. Um, I have a PowerPoint presentation which I've worked hard on and I'm really proud of, um, and I am hoping that you'll find it interesting. But before we start that, I have some questions for you. I know you're supposed to put questions on cards for me, but they didn't say I had to put my questions on cards for you. So, um, <clears throat> my anti-racist teachers talk about a power analysis. They want to know, um, 
you know, who, who is, who has the power to change oppression, basically is the question. Um, they don't ask this question about water infrastructure, so I get to do that. Um, and I'm going to start by asking you, and we'll just, we're going to do this fast because I do have that PowerPoint presentation. Do I have to stand here? That still works, right? Good. Um, so we're going to do this fast because I'm supposed to come and tell you a lot of stuff, not just ask you questions. Um, but I want you to think for a moment, we're going to take five significant water problems that we face as a community. And you can just think about how you define community. And for each of us, that might be a little bit different. But think about your community and what are the water challenges that you, your community faces, and like the big ones, okay? So let's all take a deep breath and let that wisdom come to us from our land, from our families, from our ancestors. And um, who, anybody have one for me? Uh, pollution in the fossil fuel industry. Water pollution in the fossil fuel industry. And I think I'm not gonna take time to write these down so it'll be a little bit faster. Water rights. Water rights, okay. S salt water intrusion. So we have fossil fuel pollution, water rights, salt water intrusion. Drought. Thank you for saying that one because I, in this wet, wet environment, my slide shows a lot about drought. Because that's what we, that is a big problem for us. So we have a few of these problems now. Um, anybody, is there a burning desire, something that we haven't named that you, you want to put into this pot of really big problems that our communities are facing around water? We have cost, we have the fossil fuel industry, we have water rights, we have salt water intrusion, and we have drought, drought. Anything else? That's a pretty good list, right? So, what are, so let's just talk about how we would solve some of these problems. And if you raise the problem, let somebody else offer a solution. What, would we, what could we, as a culture, do about fossil fuel pollution? Just one thing. We could get off of fossil fuels, right? We could do renewable energies. And what is one entity that has the power to do that? Government, okay. President Trump, the EPA, uh, our former governor, Rick Perry, I'm so sorry, head of the Department of Energy, actually could do a lot, right? And so if we were gonna write up sort of targets, <laughs> Governor Perry, head of the um, energy, uh, Department of Energy would make a great target. If we wanted to talk about water rights, who, who could help us resolve these issues on water rights? We're not going to go deep into what they are here or what they are where I am, but where would we look to for a solution? What would be a solution to water rights? Let me just say, let me just say right here, you know, I have three degrees in civil engineering. They taught me a lot about hydrology. They taught me a lot about uh, fluid mechanics. This is what they didn't teach us, right? They didn't teach us how to connect up 
so the solutions, the technical solutions with solving what, what actually it takes to solve a problem. And if we're going to look at water equity and the Anthropocene, we need to be connecting solutions with how to achieve them. And to do that, we have to be talking about who has the power to do that. We have to connect the fossil fuel industry with Rick Parry, your Department of Energy Secretary. And let me just say again, that is so wrong. Uh, you can't possibly know as well as a Texan knows how well that the governor of Texas is now head of that, how wrong that is. Um, so I'm not, I'm not going to try to go through all of these different things, but I want, because I think we have the sort of the essence of the point that I want to make, which is that we as environmental studies program uh, postgraduate students and, and, and carriers of this tradition need to be thinking in this way. We need to be thinking, what are the problems? What are the solutions? And how do, we, how do we activate the people that can actually solve those problems? I've been starting slideshows with this slide for a couple of years now. Um, it means, uh, I, I think it was actually a suggestion of Governor Perry in the midst of the uh, deepest drought, well, a drought deeper than the drought of record in Texas, that we pray for rain, and I think it's actually one of the wisest things he's ever said. We do need to be praying for rain, and we need to understand all the different ways that we pray. But that's just, I actually put it in kind of, I thought it would be funny to say that in the place where you get, obviously, so much rain. So this, we're going to do three pieces to this PowerPoint. Um, the first piece is going to talk, it's going to sort of model what I just did with you. I want to go through what some of our water infrastructure problems are. I want to talk about how those problems get resolved by the water utilities in a way that costs a lot of money. And then I want to look at what some really different ways of looking at solving our society's water problems would be if we looked at it more from a community perspective. So that's kind of the arc that we're going through. Um, one of the problems that we have is that we use a lot of water for landscape. Now that may not be so true here, actually, but where I'm from, 38% of, uh, of the water on an annual basis and fully half of the water in summer, which is when water is the most precious, is used to irrigate landscape. And I've actually read that in Seattle, you got, we think you get a lot of rain, but you don't get a lot of rain in the summer when your gardens are growing. And you guys are actually watering a lot of landscape as well. Next slide, please. Now, I want to step straight from the idea that landscape watering is a problem to looking at it from an environmental justice frame. And you're going to see, this is, these are zip codes in Austin, and I, you're going to see this map a lot, so I want you to understand it. White means white. It means that more than 89% of the people on the last census checked the box that said, my race is only white. That would be the box that I would check. These are the 
the darker zip codes have fewer white people in them. That's basically what this chart shows. It shows that our Austin, Texas is racially divided. To the west, it's white people. And to the east are the traditional people of color um, communities. And um, there's a whole another conversation about why that is that I'm not going to spend much time on here. But I'm going to compare for you in this slide the white communities with the water use. And I haven't put a scale on there, but what do you think dark blue means? You water a lot. They water a lot, right? And we didn't actually have to have a scale on this to know that the white communities are the ones that are watering a lot, right? Did you have to have a scale on there? Did you have to know that this is Austin, Texas? This pattern repeats every place in the country on every single measure. Next slide, please. Um, if we're going to talk about water use, I want to make sure that you understand the difference in the water use for different ways of producing electricity. Every megawatt hour of nuclear energy costs 620 gallons of water. Every megawatt of wind uses 10 gallons of water. So when we turn on the electric light, when we flip on the light switches here, the source of the electricity has a water implication. And raise your hand if you're the person who goes around after everybody and turns the light switch off. Just go ahead, raise your hand proudly, right? You are not only saving electricity, you are not only reducing greenhouse gases, you are not only helping with the problem of petroleum, fossil fuels, and pollution, you are also saving water. Next slide. We have a problem across the country with contaminated drinking water that have pharmaceuticals in it. Every These birth control pills, heart medication, um, those things are designed to be persistent in the human environment. And they are also persistent in our, in our streams and springs. So this is a really serious problem. Next slide. We have drinking water also contaminated with pesticides. Um, when we chlorinate drinking water, we create tiny little um, concentrations of organochlorine compounds, trihalomethanes. You learning that in your school, right? Every chlorinated drinking water supply has small concentrations of carcinogenic materials in them. Women with breast cancer have 50 to 60% higher concentration of these chemicals in their breasts than women without breast cancer. Next slide. This is the time. Uh, Swimming in chlorinated pools raises your cancer risk by 57%. And this is the time in my slideshow where I say glenrose.com, because people don't believe this, but if you go to my website, all of the source documents for this information is there. Next slide. They did research on the effects of cl drinking chlorinated drinking water on chickens. They found that it was linked to heart attacks and stroke, and the evidence was so compelling that chicken farmers dechlorinate the water for the chickens. We are drinking water that is not as good as the farmers would use for their chickens because they have a capitalistic profit motive to make sure that their chickens aren't dying from um, chlorinated water. 
is your drinking water fluoridated? No, you guys have solved that problem. Next slide. <laughs> when you take the hose out and, and irrigate your uh, landscape, the chlorine in the water is killing. This is an um, electron microscope of soil and the fungi and bacteria that are in the soil. This is what makes soil soil. This is, this is like incredibly important. Every, I see my professor back there is I'm nodding his head. Every time we water with chlorinated water, we are destroying, slowly poisoning, I've heard a landscape per se, slowly poisoning the soil. And I want to talk a little bit about the predicted effects of climate change on water supply. Um, this is the Texas rice fields a couple of uh, seasons ago. This is a really important slide and it's got a lot of information on it and I don't know that any, I presented it many times, I don't know if people are actually getting it or not. But <clears throat> these are the predictions for the effect of climate change and drought in central Texas on my drinking water supply. And here's what's important to notice. Temperature, I can stand in front and I don't even get in the way, so magical. Temperature, precipitation, runoff, you know what runoff is? It's like what comes off the soil, and lake evaporation. Green, this blue line is normal, unclimate change normal. The red line is, is normal with the effects of greenhouse gases. So as you can see, the temperatures go up by 5%, precipitation goes down by 95%, runoff goes down by 81%, and um, lake evaporation goes up by, uh, by 20%. So the effect, of, um, the effect of climate change on these factors that affect water supply are all in the wrong direction. Less precipitation, more evaporation, but the thing that really kills it is every water supply that comes from a lake depends on runoff. And the changes in precipitation are small, but the changes in runoff are huge. And when you compound climate change with drought, only 34%, only 34 drops of water runoff for every 100 drops that have runoff in the historic normal. Next slide. This is what that looks like in my drinking water supply. This is lake levels. Um, this is like uh, less severe than the drought of record. And this little dashed line down here means the pumps that, that supply my water are su literally sucking mud. When you put in the effects of climate change, if the drought of record that we had extended the drinking water supply for a million people in Austin, Texas, would essentially be sucking mud in about a year and a half, right? <clears throat> so... The question is, how, how are we going to meet our basic drinking water supply needs in the face of these climate change changes? <clears throat> Civil engineers do not talk about environmental justice. I mean, I think that's just a fact. I don't know of any other civil engineer but me that does. 
Um, this is a little graph that just shows <clears throat> sort of some uh, nationwide statistics. People of color are two times more likely to live without potable water and mon modern sanitation in the United States. And they've seen 95% of their claims against polluters denied by EPA. I mean, you, we know that intuitively, right? There were 7,000 people at Standing Rock um, experiencing the denial of their claims against polluters. I told you I was going, but this is, this is the kind of the thing that, that we know this sort of generally, but we don't look at the data for our own communities, okay? This is data from my community. You recognize this chart on the right? right? The blue dots are places where creek bank erosion is pulling the backyard or the building or the fence or the house into the creek. When the City of Austin Watershed Protection Department presented this map and I said to them, that looks like environmental racism, they said, no, that's not environmental racism, that's soils. And it was so uncomfortable for them that the meeting actually ended. They could not even continue the meeting. So we have this way of talking about these kinds of problems as if the problem is geological and not racist. And that needs to change. This, you're looking at the same thing. The yellow areas are flooding areas, right? If I showed you the map on the left, if you have an understanding of racism, you could tell me where the people of color in my community live. Because this is another pattern that is repeated in every single community in the country. Over and over again on every single measure. Um, okay, so which side so these are two creeks in Austin. Which side, who do you think lives around the pretty one with the trees? It runs right through our white neighborhoods, doesn't it? And who do you think lives around the one on the, on the right? Right? This is, this, is the, and this is how, it's not just this creek. Here's probably some of those erosion sites, right? Here we've got a big wide setback. Those erosion sites on the east side, on that previous side, exist because they didn't give the creek any room on the east side. They could sell, make a, add another lot, get a few more houses in there, make a little bit more profit, you know, confine the creek in a concrete channel, put the fence right up next to it where it's going to flood, and... This, this, is the this is the historic racial injustice that has happened in my community for the last one, at least 100 years, going back about to the Civil War, so maybe 150 years, because the Civil War is about when you start having white and black people living together in Austin, Texas, where, you know, flooding, right? This is not, this does not happen in the white parts of Austin. Okay, so let's look at how the utility, the Austin Water Utility, would solve these problems. <clears throat> we would build a big water treatment plant. 
a big steam electric generation plant, <clears throat> city scale wastewater treatment, and this is actually the map of um, <clears throat> the wastewater treatment plant and the reclaimed water lines that go back and out through the city to bring treated effluent back to water the lawns. It's a whole nother utility. It's very expensive. Um, it costs a lot of energy because you're pushing all that water uphill. And some civil engineering firm and a contractor is going to also make a lot of money. And I'm sorry, you guys are kind of getting left out of this conversation, but I know you're over here. Some civil engineering firm is going to get paid a lot of money and then they're going to turn around and they're going to make a campaign contribution to the mayor and the council members. So most of these projects are not actually built, planned, uh, planned, engineered, and constructed for the purpose of serving the community needs as much as they are built to transform taxpayer dollars into campaign contributions. And if you've ever read um, that beautiful book, Cadillac Desert, about all of the dams and projects in the West, that is the, really the underlying theme of that book. You cannot understand water projects in the United States in terms of water. You have to understand them as a, as a mechanism for taking taxpayer dollars and converting them into campaign contributions. Go, President Trump, go figure that out. Um, these are all dinosaurs, right? These are old ways of doing things. They are not, they don't re reflect actual 21st century realities. So let's talk about what community scale solutions would look like. We're gonna look at building the landscape as a sponge, reducing use, augmenting supply, improving health, and then <laughs> didn't even get racial justice on there, but we're gonna get there in the slideshow. Build the land, let's, let's just go through some of these kind of quickly. Uh, build healthy soils, um, rain gardens, <clears throat> green roofs. This is pervious pavement. We were walking on some of this today. Uh, I know you have it here in Olympia. And that's a garden hose. It just soaks it right up. You can depress the landscape adjacent to parking so that the water flows back onto the land. And then a lot of times the gutters are directed onto the driveway but you can instead put them onto rocks and let that water infiltrate into the soil. And you solve a lot of problems when you build, what I'm calling build the landscape as a sponge. Rather than running that water off quickly with all of its pollutants into the creek, you're soaking it into the soil. You're preventing downstream flooding. You're nourishing, and this is something that's really important to us in Texas, when you, when you pave a city you lose base flow in the creek. Do you guys know what I mean? You're masters in environmental studies, so you gotta know what base flow is, right? You, that base flow dries up. It's a huge consequence for the creek. So the more that we can build the landscape as the sponge, the more that we can sustain base flow in between the rain events. And now a few things about how to reduce water use. Of course, we wanna use native plants that don't need a lot of irrigation. <clears throat> If we could put community-scale renewable, re, um, renewable energy on the rooftops, we would solve a lot of problems, right? No fossil fuels, uh, no trans... Uh, um, we wouldn't have that big steam electric water debt, um, and it would be more 
dispersed. There's that great book, Ecotopia. Was that the book that was written in the 60s about distributed? Yes, you know. You're so young, but you know that book. That's great. Anyway, if you don't, yeah, it was, the idea was that some young activist, probably at Evergreen College, some young female activist was trying to do renewable energy. You remember this story? And the big oil companies came after her. <clears throat> Not, how many people have, how many, how many people have lived with a composting toilet? I don't mean you used one out in the thing, like you've actually lived with a composting toilet. I live with a dry sanitation. Don't tell my water utility I'm far enough away that I can say that. Um, it's not for everybody, right? But it saves a bunch of water. And I'm not on birth control pills anymore. Haven't been for a long time. But whatever medications I'm taking are not going into the water supply. There are lots of reasons why composting toilets would actually make a lot of sense. I just have always loved this image. You know, in my city, you can do rainwater catch, but you can't use it inside. Actually, in my state, the state of Texas has a monopoly protection of the Austin water utility that prohibits the indoor use of rainwater use. We need to change that law. We can use gray water. That pie, up, back, that pie chart shows most of the water in everybody's house is gray water, sinks, showers, and baths. It's not very dirty. We can't use toilets in the kitchen sink. Kitchen sink's debatable, but that's a whole other thing. And then I did these calculations. As far as I know, I'm the only person that's ever done the calculations to compare how much gray water is generated in the city of Austin, Austin to outdoor land, landscape use in 2013. If we use gray water, we could completely eliminate the need to water outside. And then <clears throat> this is a really... Um, this is a really big problem. You know, I, a lot of my slides were about that problem associated with chlorination. So chlorination was really important when people were dying of cholera and typhoid fever. And engineers, we boast that we have saved more lives in the world than doctors, and it's true. And it's largely because of that, chlor that problematic chlorinated drinking water. But people are not dying from cholera and typhoid, and we have other ways that we could solve that problem that wouldn't put such a big burden on everything, our bodies, our breasts, our cancer vulnerabilities, and our soils. We could actually provide UV disinfection at the point of use in the houses. We could use reverse osmosis, which is what I have to use to get the fluoride out of my drinking water supply. And when I do, I do this kind of presentation, most times, somebody comes up to me afterwards, you know, even just the tabletop Brita filter, it will not take out lead. Let me say that again. It will not take out lead. It will not take out fluoride. It will take out a lot of the chlorine. It'll take out those organochlorine uh, organo compounds, and it will take out the pesticides and most of the pharmaceuticals. This is the treatment method of choice for pharmaceuticals. So if you're drinking water out of the tap you should be putting it in a Brita filter if you're not doing anything else. Huge, huge health difference, right? Um, yeah, okay. And now I want to talk about just, I have a few slides on what it is that we need to do to address the infrastructure justice piece, right? Um, I'm, not, I'm not an expert on this. I'm just learning, but I'm going to share with you what I do know. Um, and the first thing is know your history. And I told you, right, it's going to be in there. This is a, um, 
This is a building from the Standing Rock uh, DAPL pipeline protests. And it says they've been trying to get rid of us since 1492. We do need to understand water infrastructure in the context of colonization. We need to understand racism in the context of colonization and to understand that these processes go back to 1492. I was never a student of history until maybe I read The People's Indigenous History of the United States. It's like an amazing book, right? Like, yeah. Okay. We need to collect and evaluate data with an anti-racist lens. The city can't look at that map and say that has to do with geography and deny the racial context of that map. We and we have to demand that they do this, and we're starting to do this in Austin. We've actually been making a transition since the city first put that map out to say, no, you have to look at, you have to collect the data, and then you have to look at it through the lens of race. And that means you have to be, also start to be comfortable talking about white skin and black skin and brown skin. You have to start talking about race. You can't live in this sort of, you know, denial fantasy about post-racism, right? We actually have to talk about it. I think I have one more slide. Maybe two. The communities most impacted must make the decisions. And I think I got this slide by Googling something like Flint water racism. And I loved it because I see this so much. White, 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 white. White, maybe not white, and white. All people of color. This is the Michigan Human Rights Commission, for heaven's sake. Right? I see this all the time. The people that are making the decisions are not the communities that are suffering from the consequences of those decisions. So this needs to be turned, right? These people need to be sitting at the panel making the decisions because they're the ones that are most impacted. And then just sort of a last slide. Yeah, right. These, this, this, is the, this is the Flint community that suffered from a decision that was made to ignore toxic concentrations of lead in their drinking water supply. That's it. That's what I know. Thank you so much. And I'll answer your questions when we get there. We'll move on. So this is a perfect transition to introduce Michael Tumkap. And so Michael was born in the village of, uh, I should have talked about pronunciation, but Aniguac Guam and raised in Tacoma, Washington. He was the founding director of the Pacific Islander Student Commission at UW Seattle in 2000 and co-founder of the Pioneer Outreach Program in 2001. He studied at the University of Virginia in 2000 as a research fellow with the Ralph Bunch Summer Institute. In 2001, he studied at the Goldman School of Public Policy as a research fellow with the Public Policy of Inter and International Affairs Institute. Michael graduated from UW Seattle with degrees in communications and political science. From 2003 to 2009, he taught ethnic studies courses to over 1,200 undergraduates at the University of California, Berkeley. He received his MA in ethnic studies from UC Berkeley in 2005 and his ABD at this point. Just getting those last little bits done. Uh, Michael worked as the lead counselor for the TRIO SSS program at UW Seattle from 2009 to 10. From 2010 to 11, he worked as a coordinator and teacher for the TRIO Upward Bound program at the Evergreen State College. 
He served as chair of the Guam delegation to the United Nations from 2008 to 2010. Michael is the founder of the Pacific Islanders, Islanders Studies Institute, a native research group working to implement PI curriculum in K through 12 and higher education in the state of Washington. His most recent work is featured in Matamai, the Vasa in Us, an anthology of indigenous writings from the Pacific Northwest. He served as the director of diversity, equity, and inclusion at the Green River College with over 134 ethnic cultures and language, languages, and now teaches at Highland College and SPSCC. So Michael will be talking, giving us a talk today entitled Indigenous and Historical Struggles for Water Equity in the United States. So in our island, the Chamorro people, the way we say hello, if, if you can repeat after me, the first word is hafa, and the second word is a day, half a day. Almost sounds like half of a day, okay? Hafa, half a day. Okay, and then one of the normal responses, if someone tells you half a day, they might say, Toto Malik, Toto Malik. That means I'm good. Now, Anhu Miget Tunkat. Ahin, see David Gumatautau Tunkat. Ginin familian Tobit Tautau Aniguat Guahan. Lahin, see via letter Teresa Nicholas. Ginin familian Tonku Tautau Asen Guahan. My name is Michael Tunkat. My father's name was David Gumatautau Tunkat, and our family hails from the village of Anigua, which is where I was born and raised for the first part of my life. And just the seven years that I spent in the motherland was enough time, seven years is all it took, to be surrounded by the sacred Pacific Ocean. And I'm not sure if you're aware, but our motherland is actually made up of the deepest trench on the planet Earth, known as the Marianas Trench, Sidus Masi. And so from that far, far distance of the island of Guam, here to you today, I want to begin by respecting the land that we're on and the first peoples of this place. Our relatives, the Nisqually, the Squaxin, the Chehalis, the Stilicum, the Puyallup, the Duwamish, the Mokashu. And so if you will, please, I ask if you stand with me for a moment as we pay honor to them. But for but Uncle can I don't actually need the mic.
Go ahead and be seated. You see, this is nothing new, to be honest with you. You know, I'm an indigenous Chamorro, 4,000 years in the making. That's how long it took to make this, to make my family. And you see, the truth of the matter is, I was born in a 671. I reminisce about a store back in that sun. Before the government brought us to Washington, 30 years later, it's where I'm raising my sons. The generation of this revolution, all of our people's history and evolution. And I teach them the ancient way, like their late great-grandfather Jose. Learn how to be a healer like the Surahanu. When their pops get on the mic, it's like some native voodoo. Don't matter if it's English, don't matter if it's Spanish. Republicans still gonna try and banish all of my civil rights flow. And now you know, and knowing is half the battle. Watch the police if you live in Seattle. We gotta fight back to make it equal. UNITY will overcome this evil. After this album, the young people gonna want a sequel. Los Latinos be like, yo, necesito. And it is that spirit of indigenous resistance that has made water the elephant in the room in the motherland of the island of Guam. I wanna give you a sense of what we're talking about because I'm sure you had the schools where lies, teachers told you lies and told you there were seven continents and I'm not sure if you're aware, but the Pacific Ocean is actually one-third of the whole entire planet Earth's surface. So in many ways, we come from the blue continent, and of which Guam is the northwest Pacific part of that ocean. And so I want to introduce, before I share the names of the special people, I want to introduce to you my auntie and my two uncles who have traveled here from the motherland. And they've actually traveled here because unfortunately in the past two weeks, I'm afraid that we lost our chief, whose name was Sonny James San Nicholas, who passed away at the age of 55. Um, like many of our people and like you shared with the data, from a heart attack and from heart disease. And so that's why they're here at this time, this time of the year. So I thought I would bring them today because really they're the true survivors, the true warriors and the experts of what's happening in the motherland. And so I'm going to do part of our tradition and our traditional knowledge, which is to talk story with our elders. So this is my uncle Leslie San Nicholas, my auntie Sherry Cruz, and my uncle Gary Cruz. And they were born and raised in the motherland and now live there, have children there and grandchildren there. And so really when we talk about who is most in need of understanding the changes of water access. Imagine if you were to live on a remote island that's the size of the island of Guam, the changes you would see throughout your life. On the picture behind you, we have my late father. He's on the far left. His name was Staff Sergeant David Gumatautau Tuncap. In the middle is my Auntie Tony, who passed away from liver complications, and to the right, is my uncle Jesus Agen Cruz, who also passed away from similar heart issues. And this talk is largely dedicated in their legacy and in their memory. 
And to start us off, I want to ask my auntie Sherry. This is the Inafresi of Guam, and I have it here, which really speaks to our value system, particularly our system around water and natural resource. So, auntie. Um, if I may ask, please stand. The Inafresi is the Guam Pledge, so how we have the Pledge of Allegiance. We also, to have our uh, Pledge of Allegiance as far as Guam is concerned. So if I may, I may, may I ask you to go ahead and place your hand on your right hand, your heart. Ginini mastakilu ihinasoku, imastakilungi korasonhu, dani masfigo naninasinahu, uofrasin maisadu, dabara baihu protehi, danhu defendi ihinengi, ikutura ilenguahi. E. Idi, E. Hanum, Danitano tomorrow. Ni irin shaku, diretu, Gininas duas tata. Esta, who are fit my gihilo e biblia, than any Dani Benderahu, e Benderanguahan. Thank you, Auntie Sherry. As you can imagine, I'm 38 years old, and so I am the generation. If you have studied indigenous people's history, you may have learned about the U.S. Indian boarding schools, yes? Well, did you know that the U.S. Indian boarding schools, they didn't stop in Indian country. In fact, they made it all the way to the other end of the ocean. And so, Uncle Les, can you tell uh, the audience, uh, what high school are you a graduate of, sir? I'm uh, class of 1972, JFK. John and F. Kennedy High School? Yes. Um, thanks to Dr. Lauren Ross here. Uh, you know, you talk about equality, uh, water. I remember growing up where we shared everything from water to food, and it came to a point where, uh, you know, the federal government took over our water rivers and everything, and it's called, we talk about inside the fence and outside the fence. We're outside the fence, so our water system uh, it's lacking a lot of infrastructure, but yet uh, they don't try to help us out. Uh, we have to pay for water from the federal government, even, be, even though we own the, the land, the Chamorro people own the land, and we pay for water. And I remember sharing it with them for so many years until they decided that, okay, uh, there's 8,000 Marines coming in and their families in the next couple of years. So they're not taking care of the infrastructure outside but they are taking care of the infrastructure inside the, the base, inside the, the fence area. So where does equality come from? Uh, um, it's just a lot of, uh, uh, I think a lot of the people in our generation are, are mad because of, of the way we're being treated. Yeah, with the way we are being treated and it's, it's really sad. Uh, we have a lot of uh, compact impact people that come into our islands from other Micronesian communities, and uh, we have to share our water. And we don't, we're not lacking water, we're just lacking the quality of the water that we, we want to have, and it, it's sad. Um, we have a lot of runoffs uh, because the island keeps increasing. We're up to 165,000 people and you have a, like a close to 40,000 population of military, and they're being taken care of, but not our community. So 
there's a lot of uh, runoffs, a lot of water that uh, chlorinated. So our drinking water is chlorinated. I'm learning a few things from you about diabetes and all this, and uh, we have a lot of uh, health issues. So you talk about equality of the water that we have, uh, it's not being shared the same as uh, we want it to. Uncle, can you share with them, when you were a young boy, how old, how old right now, Uncle, is your youngest grandchild living in Guam? My youngest grandchild is uh, four years old. And so if you can think back to that time close in your life at four or that early childhood, what do you remember the beach, the water, and the fish being like in the island of Guam? Um, and around what year was that? Yes, um, I, uh, I am 63 years old. And I remember growing up in, uh, you know, nice beaches, nice water to go swimming and everything else. So uh, um, we didn't have water issues. We, we shared our water. We all drank from the same faucet and everything else. And it's, everything has changed. Uh, it keeps, the population keeps growing and everything just seems to like, uh, we're not getting anywhere with clean water. We drink water because we have to, but as far as the, cleaning, the Clean Water Act, uh, a lot of it is government and federal, it's regulated, so uh, there's much, not much that we can do about our drinking system. We, can, we, can, we ourselves have to take care of ourselves because the government won't do it. Sijus Masi Uncle. Auntie Sherry, can you share with them a little bit about your background working in HR and some of the challenges that people who are back home, especially low-income people when they're trying to find work and the challenges maybe that they've had? Uh, okay. Um, I've been in the HR industry for a little bit over 25 years. Um, I specialize in benefits and I work for a nonprofit organization that provides employment opportunities for individuals with severe disabilities. So I'm going to talk a little bit about both. As far as healthcare is concerned, um, we have a really big struggle. What is happening in the private sector, and I'm not going to speak too much about the military because I'm not too familiar with it. But as far as the private sector is concerned and the government, I worked for the government for a short time frame. And the difference between working for the government of Guam and working in the private sector, the benefits. That's the bottom line. More importantly, the health insurance. When I worked for the government, and I, it was part of my job to go out and educate over 5,000 Guam employees, it was a very difficult task. Because what is happening on Guam is we eat what we want to eat, okay? And we, we have that belief as we're going to die, we're going to die happy because we're eating all that pork belly and sparrows. We love it all, I mean, obviously. I mean, we love to eat, and that's a very important part of our culture, just like the water. It's a very important part of our life, right? Um, as far as health insurance is concerned, in the private sector, um, they're starting to go towards the way the government of Guam is working. Government of Guam offers high deductible, low premium plans. And the problem with back home is the lack of medical facilities that we have available on Guam. So a lot of times we have to get referred off island, 
right? So the cheapest way to go is to go to the Philippines. The Philippines, you'll be surprised. They are awesome there. Um, if you've never been there and you're claustrophobic, that's not the place to go. There are millions of Filipinos there. But they're doctors and they're nurses. They are awesome. I was there for a short time frame and they took really good care of me. I don't speak the language, but my greatest fear was not that they weren't going to take care of me. My greatest fear is I couldn't speak their language. How are we going to communicate? But they were really good. My husband was with me and he can vouch. They were really, really awesome. On Guam, because we lack, you know, great um, medical physicians and nurses, we have shortage of nurses. That's the biggest struggle we have. Our, our hospital is, I don't know what to say. They always say, if you don't want to, if you want to die, go to the Guam Memorial Hospital. Because for sure, you're not going to leave there. But that's just a saying. Now, going back to the healthcare, I'm sorry, I'm kind of jumping. So in the government of Guam with a high deductible low premium plan, the government of Guam employees, they're not educated because they don't worry about it till that time comes when a major ailment arises and they realize, oh my gosh, I enrolled in this $2,000 deductible plan and they didn't put any money in their HSA. So now they're trying to figure out how are they going to pay for this? So the way that works is they pay the first $2,000 out of, out of pocket. Everything after that is 20% copayment. Nobody knows what the 20% copayment is until you actually go to the facility, right? The medical. They also have the $1,500 deductible plan, but that one is $1,500. And again, it's still, you still pay a 20%. So that's where a lot of the, the government of Guam employees are lacking um, education because they don't really care about it, or maybe that's not the right word. They just don't take the time to educate themselves. So where I work in the private sector, it's my job to educate our people. I go out like two to three times a year, and we do benefits presentations, we bring out our presenters, and we talk about benefits. Whether or not they understand it, that's another thing. But I take a lot of time to go out there and educate them. In the, the health insurance industry right now, utilizing me as an example, I'm enrolled in a standard modified health plan and the cost for health insurance just to cover a family. So you have a class one, which is a single. You have class two, which is employee and spouse. Class three, which is employee with children. And class four, which is your family to include your spouse. For family premium, I pay $313 a payday to get good quality health care. That's per payday times 24 payrolls. And with that said, I've, I've always been taught by my parents, it's better to have it and need it than to need it and not have it. And the biggest comfort in knowing that um, I have good health care is knowing that when I go to the clinic, I'm only going to pay that $10 copayment. Versus working for the government, those employees are discouraged from going to the clinic because they don't know how much their cost is going to be when they leave the clinic. Is that okay? So again, so if you live in an island that was one of the first to be colonized, imagine the impact of 500 centuries of colonization. And as many of you are probably familiar, Guam, Micronesia, specifically the U.S. Marshall Islands, was home to the most devastating nuclear tests in human history. 
Operation Bravo. And as many of you know from your expertise, the amount of time it would take for nuclear radiation to be able to not affect the quality of life in, in the marine life, we all know how, how dim and powerful that thought is. Now in the island of Guam, we have one of the highest rates on planet Earth of Down syndrome, of cancer, of autism. And one of the struggles that people have in our island and in our family is when our grandchildren are born with some of those health challenges and we lack the proper health care and the proper medical facilities to serve them, that is the true danger and the true violence of colonialism in 2017. And Tisheri, can you share with them the struggles some families have when you have children who have special needs and they're being able to have the support that they need in their life? Um, I have a granddaughter. She's four years old. Um, she's Down syndrome. Her Down syndrome is acute, but it's to a degree where she's still not able to speak. So the only assistance that she's actually really able to get is um, assistance from the Department of Education. But the, the assistance that she gets is just the physical therapy, the speech therapy, the one-to-one -one when she's going to go out into uh, a regular school. One of the things that they don't get, and one of the, I think the major reasons that a lot of the locals from Guam moved to relocate to the U.S. is um, getting other benefits, such as Social Security. It's unfortunate that individuals with disabilities at a childhood age don't are not able to receive Social Security. Um, I pay Social Security just like everybody else. And here we have people who are migrating from outer islands who if they have a disability, because they're an adult, they could collect versus my child who was born and raised in the island of Guam and is not entitled to that benefit. So what is happening is a lot of young parents are forced to relocate for medical reasons, as well as being able to collect benefits such as Social Security. The Social Security may not have a lot of money to pay, but it's better to get something than nothing. So that's one of the major reasons that people who have children with disabilities relocate to the main, uh, to the U.S. Let's give a round of applause for Auntie Sherry. So I think this is one reason why, you know, I struggle every day as a native teacher. Because as you know, every day I have to navigate racism to just try to survive here in the Northwest. I do think that's why my dad, why our family, why we ended up in the Pacific Northwest. It's almost like full circle. Now imagine what 4,000 years of navigation throughout the Pacific archipelago was like. Imagine the quality of the water we talked about when uncle and auntie, when they were kids, I want you to imagine what it would have been like for my grandparents. And you know, my uncle and auntie here, they are two of 17 children. 17 children. From those 17 children, they had 56 grandchildren, of which I am number 37. 
From those grandchildren, there's 31 great-grandchildren, of which I'm very honored to have my two sons to preserve this culture. And what I struggle with every day and what I navigate, if we could turn to the next slide, is I think about our survival. I think about what it would take for us to survive another 4,000 years. And when I need to draw on the strength of our real warriors, and I don't mean the kinds you see in movies, I mean the kind who sacrifice daily, who work multiple jobs to provide for three generations. I can't think of a better uncle to be blessed than my Uncle Gary, who is a real Chamorro, a real indigenous man, who when he grew up and his family lived off the ocean. This is our ancient Galaidi and Sakman, one of our uh, navigators from Micronesia that helped the Chamorros to restore their navigation tradition. And I want you to imagine, this is, this is the ocean surrounding the island of Guam. And Uncle Gary, if you can share with them, Uncle, what it was like for you growing up as a young man and the tradition and the role fishing played in your family, Uncle, with your siblings and with you. Okay, during my upbringing back in Guam, uh, we were taught to uh, go and uh, go fishing to provide for the family, uh, go to the jungles to get some wild animals to put it to provide for the family as well, to go to the jungles and harvest fruits to bring home and provide for the family as well. And in doing that, I come from a family of 11, and that's a lot to feed on a daily basis, you know. Um, getting uh, the brothers together to go and uh, do the hunting and the fishing is something that my parents relied on. Um, my, my dad had left me when I was two years old, and I have not seen him for 30 plus years. Uh, now he's resting, but that tells you who was the mother and who was the father in my family. So, you know the life that I went through, but we were able to do it. She just might say, Uncle, can you explain to them, uh, your sons, your grandson's generation? Because one of the things, the biggest impacts that racism has had is the impact it's had on our, on our brotherhood, fatherhood, and our male relationships. And so imagine if you come from an ancient 4,000-year-old culture, but now you live in, a, in an island that is surrounded by American influence, where now the Galaides are replaced by Toyotas and where now things like the Guafuk are replaced by designer brands. Uncle, what's, what's one of the challenges that you see today's generation, what they face and why it's sometimes hard for them to rise into their role to be good providers like you, Uncle? Well, with uh, today's technology and upbringing of the children, they're too used to modern stuff. Um, the parents would have to really take the time and teach their children and grandchildren that this is how we were brought up. 
with our own hands. You know, go out and get what you need, be it in the ocean or the jungle, and continue to provide for your family. Uh, today's generation, they turn to modernize things, be it be in front of them or things that are gonna be made down the line. But it all starts at home with the parents to really instill with them and take them along the way. You know, if you're gonna go to the ocean fishing, bring them. If you're gonna go to the jungle, bring them and teach them that this is the thing that we did during our upbringing and at the same token, you will make your parents proud and grandparents. Okay, one of the last things that we're gonna, we're gonna talk about, and I'm gonna let each of you answer it, is I want you to think about really Antigua tomorrow food, okay? If you can go back to your childhood and think of maybe the things that your grandparents would have eaten in that time. What are some real traditional tomorrow uh, meals and food that we would eat. And we'll start with you, uncle, and then we can pass it down. But when you think Antigu tomorrow, what's the food? Yes, uh, the, uh, my parents used to eat a lot of uh, taro and breadfruit. And, you know, uh, it's, there was an abundance of all these fruits that you can get off the land. And then they started building all these hotels and, you know, modernization and, and all of those are, are going away. So, you know, uh, we live in, a, like we call it a ranch, and we raise chickens and, and pigs, and uh, we, we ate a lot of rice, you know. But uh, my grandparents used to eat uh, cornmeal. They make the tejas, uh, you know, almost like bread. And uh, those were the uh, real food that my grandmother fed us. Uh, off of the land, so breadfruit, taro, and a, a lot of vegetables. So that was it. I have to apologize because I was the baby of the family. So uh, I, if I didn't like it, mom said I didn't have to eat it. So I have nothing to share with you. <laughs> okay, and I don't like vegetables, by the way. <laughs> So she got the good tail end of that. So, you know, with the upbringing of, uh, again, 11 in my family, uh, to provide food on the table, we relied a lot on, like Leslie said earlier, taro, breadfruit, bananas that grow in the wild, uh, veggies that either we have to plant or go and get them in the wild. Um, a lot of the... Uh, food that we normally eat for a large family are, we call it kadu or soup, which is the English name, that, you know, you can cook in water. Again, we ask ourselves, is the water safe? But back then, that's the upbringing, right? You know, uh, even if it comes from the Lord, if he provides the water, we're going to use it. So, um, and in Guam, we come from large families and uh, lots of struggle you know, be it our parents or our grandparents, but we manage. We manage to make do with what we have, continue to provide. Uh, even with such a large family, I mean, we still come from a large family, and you heard it that there's 17 in their family when they were all together. But, uh, you know, for me, I will continue to let and share this with my grandchildren. 
as I still here in this world, till I get cold out of this world. Thank you. Okay, so the last, uh, the last question, as we think about the future uh, and your children and grandchildren's generation, what's, what do you think is the biggest challenge that they're gonna face if they decide to remain in the motherland in terms of the challenge of, of things that we've talked about, the beach, the safety of the water. When you think about them, what do you think is the biggest challenge young people are gonna face in the future in Guam? I think the biggest challenge that we're gonna have uh, as the kids grow up is uh, not having to speak our language. You know, it's uh, sad because uh, I grew up uh, in a Catholic school and uh, English was our first language. And if you spoke our, our Chamorro language, you were disciplined. So we had to learn on our own how to speak. My, I retired from the military and my, my kids grew up and when they got back to the island, they, I started playing uh, Chamorro music, you know, local music. And they always said, Dad, why don't you turn that off? And then, all of a sudden, they got to listening and wanting to learn how to speak the language. So now, they understand you, but, but they can't speak it. They're just, just little words that, you know, I, I, I can understand and I can speak uh, as much as I can, but uh, there's certain islands that are, they speak tomorrow. I mean, they got it to the T. We speak uh, broken in English tomorrow. Let's, like, let's say, Let's play ball. Let's, let's go play gondola. You know, there's tomorrow in English in it. So our language is deteriorating. And with a large influx of uh, Micronesians and you have uh, all the cultures marrying into our, our people, uh, tomorrow language is dwindling down. And you actually, it's, it's nice that they have these local musicians that play and speak tomorrow and then we learn from them. But I just, my biggest fear is that they're just gonna stop learning. So the diversity of the people that we have on island, uh, we as parents and, and grandparents have to continue to educate them. What was your question again, Mikey? The biggest challenge. The biggest challenge, and, and this is, my kids are a lot younger than his kids. So from conversations with my children, um, the biggest challenge is um, they complain about, you know, uh, the Chukis or people from Chuk saying, ah, oh, they speak their language over time, and it, it really makes me upset. But at the same token, they're embarrassed to learn how to speak their language. I mean, there's many ways to learn it, and if they really wanted to learn it, yes, it starts at home, but there's many resources. Now, we have many, um, like my brother said, a lot of uh, entertainers, singers that speak and sing the language very well. They're great teachers. Um, one of the things that they're doing at the Department of Education, as far as government of Guam is concerned, is it's mandated that the Inifresi, which is the Guam Pledge, that by the time they leave first grade, they must learn how to recite the Inifresi. And that is, I mean, it's not a lot, but it's a step moving forward. 
and then even from the first grade moving up into high school, um, tomorrow is uh, a class that is required for them to take. Um, that's one of the challenges, and it's, it's about their generation really wanting to go out there and learning the language, and that's where the biggest struggle is. Uncle Gary, if you could address what do you think is the biggest challenge facing our people who want to return to traditional ways of fishing and traditional ways of seafaring? What's the biggest struggle about living off the ocean that you see? The biggest struggle for the uh, upcoming children, yet alone my grandchildren, would be, um, like they said earlier, not speaking the language. And it all starts with home into the schooling, which now they are providing. For the respect for the elderly, respect for one another, be it a friend, an auntie, an uncle, the teachers who try to instill the language in them, and continue to learn it, you know, take it with you, share it with, with uh, their friends, or even other people with different nationality. Um, a lot of the uh, things that are um, being modernized is a distraction for the younger generations. Uh, I don't single out the English, the English language because that's what we know as well. But being a Chamorro and being raised by my parents and my grandparents, we need to instill that amongst our kids. And I don't care if it's a sentence a day, yet alone speak it but understand it and take it to the next level and yet alone share it amongst their friends and coworkers. Um, we hear a lot of Micronesians speaking back home and Filipinos, you know, so like they said earlier, we can do the same, okay? In closing, um, seven years ago, I was uh, working at the University of Washington. I had just been, uh, just finished my qualifying exams in grad school in Berkeley. So I was also, I had students I was teaching at the City College of San Francisco, and then students here that I was working as a counselor. And one of the biggest issues that the kids brought up was they said that it was really traumatizing for them to get all the way to college and never had read an, a book about our people's history, about our culture. And so we decided to do something about it. And what we did was we created this anthology called Matamai, which means to have a vision. And it's called Matamai, the Vasa in us. We are the children of the Tao Tao Tanu the people in front, the people before time. We who identify as indigenous Pacific Islanders are descendants of the first people to inhabit the blue continent of Oceania. To us island people, the Tasi, the ocean is a sacred and spiritual space with infinite power. For many of us, this ocean represents both our ancient roots as well as our modern place on the planet Earth. After five centuries of Western and Asian colonialism, our ocean homeland faces unprecedented environmental challenges. We're at an important and exciting moment in our movement because now we see we are at the crossroads of our spiritual journey. 
For the first time, we see multiple generations asking critical questions about our present day struggle and our concerns for our people. These stories offer some of the amazing solutions from our emerging youth. And I am hopeful that this generation of youth will learn from the challenges that our elders once faced. I hope that we can continue to expand the ocean and welcome all those who have been abandoned as we continue to move forward in the struggle for Pacific Islander equity, I believe that we stand together and we can take control of our own communities. We have the kana, the power to navigate through and from within this rising ocean. And I thank you for creating this space because the truth is tomorrow I go back to the real world the real world where no one knows what a tomorrow is. The real world where no one is thinking about their relatives in the Northwest Pacific. And so for that, my familia, we, we say Sijus Masi, and we raise our hands to you, Evergreen State College. Uh, so we have up here Dr. Lauren Ross again, and we also have um, Ernesto Peñas, who is the director of uh, European Fisheries Commission uh, to answer any, quest any questions you might have at this time. And I guess I'll start out with a little one that I think uh, all of you uh, could speak to, and that's sort of the question of um, the contamination of our oceans and our freshwater bodies and just what are some steps we can take to both raise awareness for this issue and to then reverse this trend of contamination that we see in our oceans? Perhaps to answer that question, and perhaps to make an additional point I would have liked to make, and I will certainly expand on this in my presentation next Thursday. I think that I will talk next Thursday about marine resources and multilateralism. And why multilateralism? Because I think that when I hear about equity, let me even before going to the question of pollution, just tell a small story that I kind of cherish as a very interesting one, particularly after having heard the people from the small island states of the Pacific. You know that the small island states of the Pacific, among other things, they are very rich in a world commodity, which is tuna fish. And this used to be, or is today, an extremely important fish resource for the small island states. I lived uh, personally, the negotiations leading up to the establishment of the first multilateral international organization to try to manage sustainably the tuna resources. Because up to that time, in the international part of the Pacific, which as you show is so huge that no matter what the small coastal states can do, the amount of international waters around it, which were fundamentally free to, to, to catch whatever you wanted, the situation could not last, and it clearly had a big loser, which is basically the small island states. And the winners were the, you know, uh, kind of ocean-going vessels from a few from Europe, a few more from uh, the west coast of the U.S., and many more from Asia. And uh, the interesting thing about it is that, like 20 years ago, we did negotiate this multilateral arrangement that has brought about more sustainable um, uh, management of the fish resources. But curiously enough, 
it, this multilateral approach trigger a phenomenon of the establishment and negotiation of the so-called PNA, the Parties to the Nauru Agreement. And the Parties to the Nauru Agreement is uh, an agreement among eight small coastal states of the, um, uh, of the Pacific, uh, with states like uh, Micronesia, Marshall Islands, uh, Kiribati. Kiribati was perhaps particularly active, I would, I would say. And they have established a kind of commonly agreed system to ex not just to exploit, but also to share the riches of the Pacific Island. And perhaps the story that I want to sort of express today is that it was the value of an international cooperation that establishes even the basis for eight small island states of the Pacific to establish a cooperation that did not exist before. Because before this, actually, they were a little bit somehow competing with each other. And then only after we had these uh, multilateral negotiations, which were very difficult, with Australia intervening on one side, the European Union also trying to have a space there, Japan intervening on one particular way, China too. It was a very interesting experience, but the interesting result of this is that not only we did establish a system to manage jointly the tuna resources in the Central and Western Pacific, but even more importantly, that led to these eight uh, parties to the Nauru Agreement to establish a cooperation to exploit for their own benefit the tuna resources, cooperation that did not exist before. Hmm? Incidentally, just one question, which is that after listening to you, sir, I think I found this extremely interesting because the way that the Nauru Agreement is, is working now is that they are charging fees for foreign vessels actually to go and fish there. And the vessels that go, I mean, there's just even a few European vessels, a certain number of US vessels, and then lots of Chinese, Taiwanese, and Korean vessels. And they pay a fee and fish there, but with very large industrial vessels. And the question we ask sometimes ourselves is that, well, are the parties of the Nauru Agreement interested in just you know, allowing others to fish and get the cash for whatever they need? Or aren't they interested to perhaps use part of those fishing opportunities to develop the traditional activity that you have been explaining, for example? It's just a question that I ask. And then on the pollution question, I think that uh, that's also one of the uh, slides that I will show next week. It is very important that if we look at, for example, the composition of the current pollutants in the oceans, uh, the first thing we see is that the single most important component on pollution in the oceans today is uh, originated on land. So it's not even uh, um, pollution generated by sea activities. Actually, it's like, well, I don't, I'll, I'll show it to you <laughs> next week. It's like more than a third of the pollution is generated on land, even generated by landlocked states. So the first conclusion of this is that this is everybody's fault. And a country like, you know, landlocked Czech Republic, for example, Hungary in Europe, they can say that, oh, that's, that's not my fault. Yes, I'm sorry, sir. This is everybody's fault. And it's therefore everybody's responsibility to try to, to sort it out now. Uh, so next week, what I will try to explain is why to address certain things, and certain, certainly marine pollution is one of them, uh, the rise of sea levels, uh, which are a clear threat to the Pacific island states. Uh, we need multilateral efforts, and uh, no single country in the world can address this. 
And I think that if you don't know, if, if even you know this old hypothesis of Gaia, according to which, you know, this is very well known for you people, that, uh, you know, the Earth works like, a, like an organism in which what happens in one place alters what happens in another. Well, basically, what you do, uh, basically uh, sending uh, CO2 in Poland, it contributes to raise sea levels in the Indian Ocean. I think everything is connected. And I think that there's hardly any better example than marine pollution and the effects of uh, climate change, these two effects, in showing the need for international action. And that just no matter how much we invest on trying to find solutions of this, if there's not a significant contribution by everybody together in the world, there's no bloody solutions to the problem. I will perhaps elaborate more on this next week. I guess I'll add just a couple of things, um, a couple of thoughts. One is that, you know, Scott and I, when we were walking on one of your creeks this morning, we were talking about the science march that's coming up this Saturday and why we would or would not participate in it. And I think um, we, we don't, the, the informa a lot of the information that we need to know about marine pollution and ocean pollution is locked up in some journal with too many footnotes, right? And, and it, it doesn't become like a shared knowledge, a shared community knowledge. And, and I don't know if the March on Saturday is going to do that, but I think we need to have a cultural knowledge of the consequences of what we're doing um, that we don't have. Um, and, I, and the other thing I want to talk about is white supremacy. And because it's related as well. White supremacy doesn't embrace the idea of a cultural knowledge. Those two things are antithetical. Um, and, and that needs to be interrupted. And the other piece that I think is so important is that the basis of ex white supremacy, the idea of white supremacy is the basis of exploitation. That my benefit is more important than the consequences to other people. And those two things, I think, have to be brought together, a cultural understanding of the consequences of what we're doing, and then a disruption of this idea that, my, um, that I have a right to exploitation, which is the foundation of white supremacy. And so part of the reason that we wrote this book and why this Pacific Islander Studies Institute exists is because part of the solution, we think, is to include and incorporate indigenous knowledge into all public education, from K-12 to graduate school. And so not necessarily the notion of requirements, but our value system is in alignment with the concept of sustainability. Uh, Uncle Gary, if you could maybe say a word about the rules of when you were younger and when your mom told you when you're allowed to fish, when you cannot fish, and why we believe that. Okay, so my mom has this uh, belief back home that three months uh, towards the end of the year, she would not allow us to go out fishing in a boat. Uh, reason for that is because the oceans just seem to take people away in Guam. So basically the waters become rough and we have this belief that because the year's closing, 
people will be taken by the Lord our God because they tend to go out there and challenge what our parents and grandparents tend to remind us of. And it's dangerous out there. It's either you or the ocean. So that's one of the reasons why that I, for one, listen to my parents when they say, don't go out in the ocean three months towards the end of the year. And I don't know if that's being thought out here or even to go out, be it to have a good time with your friends, two or three months, because things happen, bad things happen towards the end of the year. So with that being said, I instill that into my children, remind them that these are the things that, that, that will happen to them. Um, can you guys talk about how drinking water is impacted by coastal pollution or if you've got anything to say about kind of the saltwater intrusion problem? Um, anything to that effect? Saltwater intrusion is generally a function of overproduction of an aquifer. So it's more tied to um, misuse of the resource or overuse of the resource than it is actually, I mean, the salt water is a pollution. Um, there, are, there are places, I think in California, where they're actually injecting treated wastewater into the groundwater to, to make a barrier to the saltwater intrusion. Um, and, and we talk about doing that in, in my community as well, like aquifer storage and recovery. Um, it's kind of crazy, in my opinion, to take water that isn't, you know, isn't actually groundwater quality water and sticking it underground. I think we would be better served by more judicious... I mean, we waste so much water. You know, saltwater intrusion is largely a function of the fact that we just waste the resource. So in terms of the public school education and kids um, who comes from Guam or their families from there, um, what would you like um, teachers to know if it's like to be implementing uh, teacher training? And also what would you like to, yeah, to see that will help them? So in our state, we actually have a law that says in the K-12 system, students must learn the history cultures and identities of indigenous peoples. The problem with the law is that there's no check and balance. And so there's a similar challenge in Guam. Students are required to take how many years of Chamorro language? In high, school, in high school, they need two years. And so if you think about language requirements and other graduation requirements, I think the solution is to try to diversify the curriculum. Because as you know, anyone who's faculty, teachers have a lot of autonomy and freedom to shape the syllabus, to shape the readings, and to really define the kind of tool sets you're gonna give students. So I think the solution is to give them indigenous ways of knowing, and not in a romanticized Hollywood kind of way, but in a real traditional kind of way where we are outside and in part of our environment, where we are learning. The reason I'm sitting on the ground is because I'm not their brother and sister, nor am I their first cousin. 
They're my mother and father's sisters, first cousins, and so I respect that even though I may be the one with the master's degree, we all clearly can see who's the masters of the culture. And that's what it's gonna take, is a radical paradigm shift, where the educators, the teachers, where they create spaces for indigenous people to share in the teaching of knowledge. So thank you, that was a great question. So one of the things I was curious about is where that intersects with the other, like with embedded within the indigenous knowledge, the cultural knowledge, is a significant amount of science and practice and sustainability, right? And the understanding and personal connection to the environment, the natural world, and what we call resources in, our, in my culture's language. And um, there's a different sense of relationship and respect. But along with that comes an actual knowledge of how it functions that's often disregarded. And, and so I was interested if you had anything to say about that intersection. So there's a new textbook out, I'd recommend it, called Pacific Ethnomathematics. And I gotta say, as a Chamorro from a village of Anigua who grew up in Tacoma, I was certain that math hated my guts. Maybe you can relate. I really struggled in mathematics. And I think one of the biggest barriers was when I earned my first D in a class. And from that moment, I was colonized into thinking that I could never understand the concept of mathematics. Had I known back then at 13, 14 that my people navigated the largest ocean on the earth, I think I would have given it a different perspective. If you could teach geometry through tattoos, through the physical placement of tattoos to, to, to people as a way to change the pedagogy, I really believe, like you said, the worlds can peacefully meet and align. The native Hawaiians, they have a system called the kapu, and in the kapu, there's rules about when you can and cannot fish, like Uncle Gary shared. And those are, again, the same value systems that the Western environmental science pedagogy wants to achieve as well. So I think that's the key, is trying to find the newest pedagogies and textbooks out there. So we've got time for one last question. Uh. Dr. Ross, you mentioned uh, before uh, that individuals who um, need to be on those panels, need to be part of the communities. Um, as students here, what can we do to encourage something like that in our own communities as well as, um, as in the communities that you mentioned in an empowering way? I mean, I think the first step is to know, and I think this ties in really well, Michael, with what you were just saying, know whether or not you're part of the impacted community. I mean, I'm the PhD civil engineer. I'm not the person that experiences flooding in my community. And so it's my job to, to say that and to make space, as you've done so beautifully here, um, for, the, for the voice of the people who are actually impacted. And that often means that um, I won't have anything, I won't, I won't be sitting in the front. I'll be sitting there listening to those stories. But it, 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 you know, it's leaning in and it is trusting the wisdom of the people's everyday lived experience. Um, we can do that. Yeah. Uh, that's it uh, for now. We're about out of time, but thank you all so much for coming.